Hebrews chapter 2. Just a reminder, the context of the letter of Hebrews being written anonymously, we don't know the author, uh, written to early Christians in the Roman Empire who, under persecution and difficulty and threat, were uh, tempted to abandon their new Christian faith and to instead go back to the Judaism that they had come out of. And the author of Hebrews is uh, warning them, encouraging them, cautioning them, and in order to, uh, to call them to stay faithful to Christ, presenting before them an image of the greatness of Christ, that he is superior to anything else we might consider. And so our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. We've been trying to contact you about your car's extended warranty. Yeah, you, you all have gotten that call. Your social security number is on hold due to suspicious activity. Not even possible. Please call us to reactivate. Or my favorite, one that uh, comes to me, and it's on my voicemail, entirely in Chinese. It says, this is the Washington Embassy of China. Your visa is about to expire. It's an emergency. Please call us to pay the reactivation fee. Warnings like this for us are all too common. Likewise, we get messages and offers that we just rule out because we know they're fake. You may already have won a million dollars. I probably haven't. And because we've become so used to filtering out the, the, the fake warnings and the fake offers, uh, sadly, the truth can find it harder to get through that filter. I mean, who has lost, who here has not lost an email from a friend because it got somehow rerouted to your spam folder? We've grown so used to not taking seriously the messages that we receive that we sometimes fail to respond to the legitimate ones. And the author of Hebrews is worried for his audience because as they receive this letter at the crossroads, having begun to abandon their faith, the question is, will they take seriously the urgent, earnest message of the gospel? Or will they reject it and neglect it and lump it in with all those other messages that we get? And for us, a people inundated with offers and warnings and messages all day long everywhere we look, Will we really take seriously the message of the gospel? Will we treat it as it deserves to be treated, like, or will we treat it like just one other message among many? But the gospel is not just a message. The gospel is God's way of salvation for us, as we confessed in our confession of faith this morning. And because the gospel is God's way of salvation, we must take it seriously. And we see that in these verses in several ways. The author of Hebrews first encourages us to take seriously the source of salvation. 
We're going to begin with the the latter part of the passage here, verses 3 and 4, in describing the gospel that it speaks of the source of salvation this way. The gospel was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. First, almost in passing, as we look at those verses, notice the presence of the Trinity in proclaiming the gospel to us. First, it is declared by the Lord, which when the New Testament uses that word Lord, it is almost always speaking of Jesus, God the Son. And we know that especially because it says this message was declared by the Lord and then communicated to us by those who heard Him say it. The apostles heard the word of Jesus it's declared by the Lord Jesus, and then God the Father bears witnesses, bears witness through signs and wonders and miracles. And lastly, the Holy Spirit confirms its truth in the lives of those who believe it with, with the gifts of the Spirit. Now, that's not a coincidence that the, the Trinity is present in communicating this message. The author of Hebrews wants to impress upon you the seriousness of this message. It comes from the highest authority. It's not the word of of men and women, wise people who just want to communicate their good ideas. It's the word of God. Peter wrote as much to the church in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The call to believe and obey the gospel is not a human suggestion. It is rather a command from God. It was first declared by Jesus and spread by those who heard it directly from Him. Verse 3, declared it first from the Lord and then attested to us by those who heard. But how do we know that we can trust those who heard him? How do we know that Jesus and then his disciples were not a bunch of crazy frauds? Even if they were had the best intentions, maybe they just had some weird and wacky notions that God himself would not approve of. Well, that's why in verse 4, the author of Hebrews mentions that God himself bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. Notice that it says God bore witness, that's past tense, not bears witness, tense matters. In Greek, the word that the author of Hebrews uses when he says they, uh, that God bore witness, it connects that word to the testimony of the apostles. God is, at the same time that the apostles speak, He is bearing witness through their signs and their wonders and their miracles. And so in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says to the church of Corinth, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. When, when Paul spoke, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with the utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. These signs and miracles, they're the works, the signs, the, the presence of an apostle, apostle, one who was sent directly by Jesus, having heard the gospel from him directly, which is why we don't demand or expect to see those things today. Well, we don't call you here to come and witness miracles and mighty acts and signs and wonders. God can do those things. He certainly can whenever He wants to. But He has told us that we should not expect those things. 
Because those things were to confirm the message of the apostles when they spoke it. And having confirmed them, they committed them to writing. And that is the message we have today. Look in the scripture to see when miracles happen. You know, sometimes we, we don't realize that the Bible doesn't give us a day-by-day description of life in Bible times. It records for us the extraordinary moments, the extraordinary events. People weren't witnessing miracles every day in Israel and every day in the life of the early church. Now, when did miracles happen? If we look in Scripture, there's three main times. The times of Moses and Joshua, when God was introducing the word of the law. The times of Elijah and Elisha, when God was introducing his word through the prophets. And the time of Jesus and his disciples, when God was introducing his word through the gospel. Miracles, signs, wonders, these are how God puts his his stamp of approval on a revelation, on a word that is being said, saying this is God's authoritative word. He bears witness to it. Uh, this just happened last night, so it's not on the slides or, or even in my notes, but just last night, um, one of my children, you know, going to bed, wanted to said, read me a story from Mark or from John. Just what every parent wants to hear. It's like, so we, we flipped through and I, I just picked John 9, one of my favorite stories, the story of Jesus healing a blind man. And I, I saw this same principle apply. The Pharisees uh, interrogating this man who had received sight from Jesus and saying, we know this man is a sinner. Come on, tell the truth. Fess up. And the blind man with no training or education said, come on, from the beginning of time, no one has ever heard of someone healing a man born blind. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but to those who do his will. If this man is healing blind people, if he's doing signs and miracles, it means that God is speaking through him. That's the Rob Enfield paraphrase of what John 9 said. But the point is the same. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes to us from God, and therefore it has his authority. God put his stamp of authority on it. That's why the disciples, when they proclaimed the message, said, Jesus, a man attested to you by God with signs and wonders and miracles. We don't, therefore, get to pick and choose if it comes from that source, that authority. We don't get to pick and choose what we obey. Many of you are teachers or have been teachers. Almost all of you have been in a classroom at some point. I was at my children's school the other uh, couple weeks ago, and uh, you know, visiting the classroom. And on every classroom on the whiteboard was listed the class rules. Now, those are the rules that the teacher makes, and the teacher has authority. Think of a student who who looked at those rules and says, "Well, I like numbers one, three, four, and seven. The rest of them aren't for me." Would, would a teacher endure that kind of so-called obedience? No. No, and likewise, when it comes to obeying the word that comes from God, we don't take his word and flip through and say, well, I like these parts, but but I, I can't believe in a God that does this, or I don't like that God commands this. This doesn't fit what I like or believe. If we do that, we are not accepting the salvation that comes from the source of the authority of God. James chapter two, the apostles puts it this way. If anyone keeps the whole law of God, if you obey and believe everything God says, but fail at one point, there's one thing you don't obey, then you are guilty of breaking the whole law of God. Because the same one who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. 
Now, if you do not commit adultery, you keep this command, but you break this one, you murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. And the point is that the law, the the word of God comes to us as a whole. And so our response to it does not reflect our view of particular points of the law. It reflects our obedience to the lawgiver. Do we accept that it comes from God? If so, then it all has authority over us. And so we humble ourselves under the word of God. We have to recognize this is not human wisdom. This is not okay as long as it fits the spirit of our age and of our culture and what people want to be true. The source of our salvation is none other than God himself. We have to respond to it and take it seriously because of that. If it was human wisdom, if if what we shared to you were my thoughts or my opinions or the views of any, any notable author or figure, you're not bound to that. You are bound to the source of your salvation, which is God alone. So take it seriously because of that. But also in this passage, we see that we have to take it seriously because of the pattern of salvation. The author of Hebrews puts these words in the context of how God works and looks at the history of how God saves his people. In verses 2 and 3, he says, The message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Let's take that apart piece by piece and and see what it's showing us. Uh, First, he says, the message declared by angels. To the audience of this letter, that that didn't need any explaining at all. They knew exactly what that meant. Uh, To the Old Testament uh, believers and to the believers in, in the early church, The message declared by angels was the law, the law given to Moses. For though it was God who revealed it to Moses, they believed that he spoke through intermediaries, through angels who communicated that message. We see that even in Acts 7, as Stephen is speaking. He says, Moses was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. You received the law that was delivered by angels and did not keep it. So when we see that message declared by angels, we know we're talking about the law given to Moses, the Old Testament law. And what the author of Hebrews is pointing out is that God followed through on that law. It proved to be reliable. What God warned Moses came true. He said, if you keep my law, I will bless you. I will prosper you in this land I'm giving you. And when they conquered the land in Joshua, it said not a word of the Lord fell to the ground. Everything that God said came true. And yet God also warned them and said, if you disobey me, if you turn and worship other gods, if you do not love your neighbor as I've instructed you, you will be punished. You will be conquered. You will be sent into exile. And the author of Hebrews is saying, look, it happened. The message declared to angels proved true, and their disobedience received its just retribution. It got exactly what God said it would get. Now, why would we expect that the message that came not through angels, but through Jesus himself, why would we expect that that would prove any less trustworthy? Why would we expect God to take that word any less seriously or have any less follow through on that? We don't. But I, I want to dig a little deeper, though, because set up that way, it sounds like God's law and God's salvation is uh, the work of a stingy, 
picky, angry killjoy who's, who's watching you to make sure you're following the rules like a, a child who loves a particular board game and, is, and knows all the rules. And if you slip up and do something, aha, I got you. And we can often picture God that way because he gives us his law. He tells us how to live. And we get this idea that, well, if I do the wrong thing, I'm punished. I get a consequence. If I do the right thing, I get a reward. But that's not how it works. I mean, that's how it plays out, but that's not the heart behind it. Let's look at this message declared by angels. After it was delivered, we see this. Uh, God concludes it in Deuteronomy 30 this, in this way. He says to the people, See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to take possession of it. But but if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but you're drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today, you shall surely perish." That's the pattern of salvation. Not here's some arbitrary rules and I'll reward the obedient ones and punish the disobedient ones. But rather, here is a way that leads to life and salvation. Follow that. If you reject that, you will not receive life and salvation. If you don't take the only road that leads there, you're not going to get there. It reminds me of a, a movie, a, a 1972 movie called Poseidon Adventure, starring Gene Hackman and Shelley Winters. Uh, I do not accept the 2006 remake, so if, you, if you're wanting to go look up the movie, the 1972 version, far superior. Uh, Gene Hackman and, and the, the cast play a crew on a cruise ship, and in a rough storm, the cruise ship has capsized, it's flipped upside down, and the survivors are trapped in this air pocket, at, which is... What is the top of the ship used to be the bottom of it. Um, but they're cut off. They can't cut through the ship to get help or to be rescued. But Gene Hackman, who incidentally plays a pastor, he was at another part of the ship that had an exit. And he knows how to get out now. But recognizing that people are trapped, he goes through the ship and finds them. And he communicates this message. He says, there's a way out. You have to follow me. If you follow me, we'll go, they have to go down through the water and come back up on the other side to another air pocket and they can get out of the ship and be rescued. Help is on the way. But the only way to get there, you have to come this way. It's the only way to survive. And there are those who hear that message and say, no, no, no. We're going we're gonna to find another way. We're going to do it a different way over here. But there's a small group that, that follows Gene Hackman through the underbelly of the ship and through the water and eventually reaches Safety. And that's, that's the picture that we've got here. As God in Deuteronomy sets forth his law, he says, I've set before you life and death. I've set before you a way that leads to prosperity and happiness and peace and eternal life and a way that, that doesn't lead to that. And I'm begging you, choose this. The way of God is not an arbitrary path that he's just going to reward if you follow and punish you for disobeying. He set before you the way of salvation. That has always been the pattern of salvation. Before Christ and through Christ, it's the same. Trust God, obey Him, because He's showing you what it takes to live. That's how it was in Exodus. That's how it was in Deuteronomy. 
That's how it was in Isaiah. That's how it is today. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples say, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so the pattern of salvation is not believe in Jesus because God is picky. It's not believe in Jesus because God just wants to test you to see if you're really listening. Believe in Jesus because God is, is, is rude and wants to rule everyone else, else out. No, it's believe in Jesus because there's no other way that leads to life. And God is warning you. He is promising you. He is blessing you to follow that way. And that's why the author of Hebrews asks us, having set all that up in verse three, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If there's only one way to safety, as Gene Hackman was telling them, how are you gonna get out if you don't follow that one path to life? If the history of God's salvation has been to mercifully and to graciously reveal to us the way of life, and to urge us towards it, and to show us what it looks like, what do we expect to happen if we turn our back on that great salvation? And so the danger is that we might not take it seriously. We might not take seriously the urgency of the call, the exclusivity of it. The danger is not we'll make God angry because we didn't pick the same favorite thing He picked. No, the danger is that we miss the one way that He shows us, the only way. So ask yourself, do I take seriously that God has revealed, mercifully revealed to me the way of life? Is the Christian faith to you just an accessory, an add-on, an option, something you can pick and choose, take it or leave it? Or are you living with the appropriate sense of urgency and necessity from the message of Christ? And what that looks like we see next. We take seriously the source of salvation. We take seriously the pattern of God's salvation. And we need to take seriously our response to salvation. Working backwards, we've gotten to the first verse of the text, which I hope will make more sense now. Verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. That's the response of salvation. What we have heard in that verse is the message of the gospel declared by the Lord, attested by the apostles, borne witness by God, and confirmed by the Holy Spirit. But what does it mean to drift away from that message? The way these verses are set up, drift away is another way of saying neglect such a great salvation. But it's interesting, very, very interesting that the author chooses that word drift because it's a nautical term. It's a term used to describe boats at sea. And I speak here to Floridians primarily. We are boat people. You, got, you either own a boat or you've been on a boat or hopefully you've seen a boat and you know how boats work. If you have sailed into safe harbor and just think that you can leave your boat sitting there unanchored, unsteered, unpropelled, just sitting there, What's going to happen? It's going to drift. You're not on a lake. You're not in a pool. You're not in a tub. The water is moving, and it will carry the boat. The boat will drift. Is there anything you can do about that? Absolutely there is, and that's exactly the point. When a boat is drifting away, 
It's not misfortune. It's exactly what you expect to happen. And so if a boat is drifting, that's culpable inaction. The captain has failed to do something that can be done to prevent the drift. Because in the ocean, as well as in the Christian life, staying still isn't an option. Doing nothing and expecting things to stay the same doesn't work. If we are not moving ourselves forward, then we are being carried along in another direction. And the danger is that through some lack of effort or lack of attention, we would end up neglecting the way of life that God calls us to. We would neglect our salvation. Which at first might not sound like it applies to us, most of us. We are, we are Christians. We have called ourselves Christian. Perhaps you've always grown up knowing the gospel. Perhaps you can recall a day when you said the sinner's prayer and came to Christ and first confessed faith. In any case, you have worshipped and lived as a Christian for, for how long? Years, decades, some of us. But so were the people who received this letter 2,000 years ago. The author of Hebrews is writing to people who called themselves Christians, who confessed faith, who lived it out who were persecuted for it, who bled for it, some of them. And the author of Hebrews says, you, you Christians are in danger of drifting away if you don't pay closer attention to what you've heard. Drifting looks like going with the flow. Drifting looks like being like everyone else, acting in a way that feels natural and normal in the world that's affirmed by the world around us. It takes work to live as a Christian. And if you are not working at it, you are drifting away. The author of the Narnia series, C.S. Lewis, I introduced him that way in case you've never heard of him. Most of you have, but if you haven't, maybe you've heard of the Narnia series. He was a prolific author, wrote many, many uh, informative, wonderful works, uh, one of them being Mere Christianity, which he's writing to his culture to make an argument for the case of Christianity. Uh, and one of the things he says there is if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. And his, he suspects not very many. Do not most people simply drift away? It takes effort to continue to live as a Christian. It's insufficient to, to once say, I believe, and then do nothing about it. And then not live in response to that belief. If that's you, you drift away. So we shouldn't brush off this warning as not applying to us. Because in fact, this warning is meant for us. It is meant for you, the Christian sitting in the church pew, knowing and understanding the gospel and confessing it and believing it. Don't drift away by not acting on it. And this is where we get into tricky territory because we firmly believe and teach that we are saved by God's grace and not by our works. We are preserved by God's grace. God preserves his people until the end. And yet there is a consistent theme in Scripture that those who are saved by grace and preserved by God's grace must exercise that grace. They have to put it to work. They have to bear fruit. It is like if you picture the Israelites at the Red Sea where God tells them, stand still and watch how I fight for you. You stand still and watch the victory of God. 
And what does God do? He parts the waters for them, right? And then what do they need to do? They need to walk through the Red Sea that he has parted. God, by grace, has saved them and then calls them to to go forward in the path of salvation, to act upon it. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Paul describes it this way in Philippians 3. Not that I've already obtained all this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The grace of God in making Paul his own, making you his own, leads to us pressing on. Brothers, I don't consider that I've already made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Straining forward is the opposite of drifting away. You must strain forward. Paying attention to the gospel means acting on it, doing something about it, obeying it. Belief equals action. You hear me talk about that a lot, and I'm going to say it again. Belief equals action. If you believe a Category 5 hurricane is coming towards you, you're going to board up the house. You're going to bring in the patio furniture or throw it in the pool, depending on which kind of Floridian you are. You're going to do some preparation. If you believe that, you'll act on it. If you believe the market is about to take a serious dive, you're going to sell, I think. That's my understanding of the market. If you believe the teacher has a pop quiz ready for you on Tuesday, you're going to study Monday night, aren't you? If you really believe something, you take the appropriate action. Likewise, Christian, if you believe that you are forgiven freely by God's grace, you will graciously forgive others. If you believe that your worth and your value and your identity comes from God, then you won't live seeking the approval and acceptance of your peers and other people and letting them tell you what you need to look like, act like, dress like, weigh like, behave like. If you believe that God will be triumphant over every power, then you will patiently and bravely endure opposition and persecution and mockery and rejection. If you believe that this world is passing away and God will make it new and that your eternal citizenship is in God's kingdom, then that will affect how you treat your money, how you use your time, how you relate to other people. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. It takes effort to do those things. But pastor, what is that? What about grace? Are we not saved by grace? There's a lot of do. There's a lot of effort. There's a lot of work in what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. But grace does not exclude our effort. Grace enables our effort. You'll hear that almost every week from this pulpit in some form or another. That the grace of God doesn't make our works unimportant. Instead, the grace of God makes our works possible. Philippians 2, the apostle says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Don't drift away. Strain forward. Why? Because it's God who's at work in you 
to will and to work for his good pleasure. You would not be able to strain, to push forward, to pay attention, to be diligent, to lay hold of that salvation if it was not God's grace at work in you, making you will it and act upon it. I thought of this just the other day as the storm was coming in and uh, my, my family and I were going around making preparations in our house and uh, I looked up at my, my roof, you know, worried that something might happen to it, not that there was anything I could have done at that point. But as I looked up at the roof, I noticed the most curious thing. I noticed grass growing up out of the gutter, okay? Never seen that before, which explained why that gutter had never been really draining water off the roof, and I'd never understood why. So we got out the ladder and, and climbed up there, and um, you know, I had my wife standing nearby in case I saw a rat and screamed or something like that and fell off the ladder, which I would be prone to do. And as, long story short, what had happened was I had to take the whole gutter apart to find this out. The uh, toy, years ago, not even our toy, had just gotten lodged in it, and over the years, the dirt had just accumulated, and then grass started growing, and water could no longer drain through. It could no longer serve its purpose. And so as I reached in there with tools and gloves and all sorts of things and scooped it all out and, and got the dirt out and then got the toy out and disassembled the whole thing, put it back together, sprayed the hose, and lo and behold, the water's going through just like it's always meant to do. Hey, what does that have to do with me and you? You are the gutter. God has created you for a purpose. And because of sin, you are not fulfilling that purpose. Because of misdirected loyalties, twisted desires, whatever it is, you are not fulfilling the purpose God created you for, which is this. Jesus said in John 10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's what God made you for. He shows you in his law. He shows you in the life of Christ what that looks like, but your goal, your purpose, what you were designed for and made for is to live abundant, joyful life in God's kingdom. And something has clogged that up. And what Jesus has done in dying for our sins and giving us the Holy Spirit is He's dug in through the dirt and removed the clog. And now you can do what you were always meant to do. You can live that abundant life. That's the beauty of these verses in Hebrews. They are a warning, yes. They urge us to work harder, yes. But that by itself would be like me climbing up to the top of the ladder, looking down at the gutter and being like, stop it! Just let the water go through! That wouldn't work, would it? I had to clear the clog out, and that's... That's why these warnings, these exhortations, these commands don't make any sense unless they point us to the grace of God, the great salvation that makes your effort possible. They all point us back to the great salvation that is too important to neglect. Don't miss it. Don't drift away from it. Don't turn your heart away from it. Work harder, yes, but work harder because of the good news that He has cleared away the obstacles. He has made it possible for you to live and act in the way that leads to joy. The only way that God so graciously points you to again and again. The only way that leads to the life you were built to live. Let us pray that that would be true of us, that we would live in joy because of what Christ has done. Heavenly Father, 
You alone can rescue. You alone can save. And you have done so through Jesus Christ. And now we pray that by your grace, we would enjoy, live out, enjoy and live out the salvation that you have provided. You call us to come and lay down our lives to die for the sake of, of your kingdom. But this is only possible because we look upon the one who on the cross first laid down his life has promised us life eternal. We thank you for the work of Jesus and what that means for us. And we thank you for the spirit that testifies to this and equips us to obey this. In the name of our Savior, we pray these things. Amen.